0: Well, in uh, Acts chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, we read this, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, if you remember, Antioch was the church where the Apostle Paul first served, and it was a church in which we find some of the earliest Gentile, the earliest non-Jewish converts, and it was a church made up of a mix of both Jewish and Gentile believers, and in that church, in that church in Antioch, and, and because by the time you get to Acts chapter 11, uh, it was becoming clear that this Jesus movement wasn't just a Jewish thing. They needed a title beyond Judaism. But in that church, the disciples were first called Christians. And the title stuck. <laughs> the title stuck. Uh, it has defined us ever since. It is a description of who we are. We are Christians. We are followers of Jesus, the Christ. The Messiah. But sometimes, uh, as is true with so many things that are common to us, sometimes because that term, a Christian, is so common to us, we lose sight of its significance. And what I mean by that is that sometimes we lose our grip on the identity within our identity. We lose sight of what truly defines us, uh, the reality, the glory, The beauty of Jesus Christ. As Christians, Christ is central to our faith. His identity is central to our identity. But do we understand his identity? Do we understand his identity? Or has talking about Jesus become so common, so so elementary to us, that we quickly run by it? without pausing to make sure that we understand this identity that is so central to our own. So let's raise this question this morning. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's an important question. That's an important question for us to be able to answer, especially as those who call themselves Christians. Who is Jesus Christ? And there are, there are a lot of ways that people answer that question. Uh, let's say this afternoon we were to go up to the University of Washington and walk around Central Plaza or, or as it's better known, Red Square. And we're going to go up there and walk around and, and if we were to ask the, que- the students that we meet, if we were to ask them this question, who is Jesus? You can guarantee you're going to get a variety of answers. Some students would probably simply label Jesus as a creation of religious fiction. They'd argue, well... He never really existed. People made him up and they made him up in order to control and suppress other people. They say Jesus is just one more example of a religious tool used by those in power to control and suppress those without power. Someone would probably give you that answer. However, you probably meet some other students who wouldn't necessarily go that far. Uh they might say that yes, Jesus really existed and he was a he was a good person. They might even say he was an exemplary person. That he, he lived with love and with grace and with mercy and compassion, and that he showed his followers how to do the same with love and grace and mercy and compassion. Then you probably would meet some students who took it even further. They'd say, well, Jesus wasn't just a good person, he was a gifted teacher. They might describe him as a revolutionary, one whose teaching was so powerful, it was so countercultural. And that it ended up leading to his tragic and brutal death. They might even suggest to you that his teachings hold great value for us today. Because, because his teaching teaches us how to live true and humble lives in the midst of an oppressive society. That's how some would probably answer the question. And then again you might meet some who would go even further. Maybe if you were talking to a Muslim student, they might answer that Jesus was a holy prophet sent from God, a messenger from God. Actually, Islam teaches that Jesus was one of the five greatest messengers appointed by God. So so if you were to ask this question of a Muslim student that you ran into up there at the UW, they might end up speaking of Jesus with reverence and with respect. They, They would view his teachings as being truth come from God. Words of a great prophet. Here's the thing. None of those answers would fully encapsulate the Christian answer to our question Who is Jesus? But but I imagine if we were up there talking to UW students, I imagine that you'd find a few that would identify as Christian. And they might give you more Christian sounding answers. M- maybe you'd meet some who'd answer our question this way Who is Jesus? Well, he's my personal savior. And that sounds like a very Christian answer indeed, doesn't it? He's my personal savior. But what do they mean by that? You might ask them that question. What do you mean by that? Your personal Savior from what? And the answers to that question might be just as varied as the answers to the other question. Some might argue that through faith in Jesus, they are being saved from physical illness and suffering. They might say that I, I know people who have been healed by faith in Jesus, and so I'm looking to Jesus for that same kind of healing for me. Or they might say that they turned to Jesus to get deliverance from their financial struggles. They might have listened to a TV preacher exclaiming that God wants his children to live a life of abundance. A life freed from oppressive financial woes. So so they might tell you, now I'm believing in Jesus in order to be freed from the oppression of my student loans. If only I have enough seed faith. Others might tell you that they turned to Jesus in order to find purpose and meaning for life. They might share a testimony with you of being, being wrapped up in the party scene or of being a, a depressed, aimless student who was wasting their life only to then hear about Jesus and discover that they were made to love and to serve others. And for them, Jesus is their saving purpose. He simply gives their life direction. And then still you might meet others who tell you that through faith in Jesus they've started on their quote-unquote Christian journey. For them, Jesus is the Savior who gets them in the door. He, he's like the Kickstarter campaign who gives them enough funding in order to launch their new religious lifestyle. You see, my guess is that if we, if we wander the UW campus asking this question, who is Jesus, we'd get a variety of answers. Here's the thing. If this identity, the identity of Jesus, is what defines our identity, if our identity as Christians is tied into the identity of Christ, well, here's the thing. If we get Jesus wrong, then we're going to struggle to understand who we are. If we get Jesus wrong, we're going to struggle to understand who we are. And if we don't understand who we are, then we're not going to know how to live. You see, living the life of a Christian is rooted in our understanding of the identity of Christ. Living the life of a Christian is rooted in our understanding of the identity of Christ. And that truth becomes abundantly clear as the Apostle Paul writes to correct errors that have crept into the churches in Galatia. So go ahead and take your Bibles now and turn to the New Testament book of Galatians in chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And last fall, we began studying this this rich, intense, and important New Testament letter. But then last summer, we took a break from our study. I went on sabbatical, and we launched our Summer of Psalms series. However, last week, we picked back up with this book, and we jumped into chapter 4. And as we jumped back into chapter 4 last week... I reminded you of the problem in Galatia and why the Apostle Paul felt compelled to write this letter. You see, some people, some teachers, had come to the churches in Galatia and they were telling them, You don't need no alibi. You ugly. Remember that little U G L Y? You don't need no alibi. They were telling them, You're ugly. Now, they weren't saying that literally. They weren't literally commenting on their way their faces looked. But metaphorically, that's exactly what they were telling the people. They were telling the Christians in Galatia, you are ugly. Let me explain what I mean by that. You see, many of the churches in Galatia were full of non-Jewish converts to Christianity. They, they were full of Gentiles. Gentile converts to Christianity, Gentiles from a Gentile pagan background. However, these these new teachers who had shown up in the Galatians churches, they were Jewish. And these Jewish teachers then looked down upon these Gentile converts. They viewed these Gentile converts as just uncircumcised, lawless, second-class Christians. Like they were the ugly stepchildren of the Christian community. They viewed these Gentile Christians as ugly but these Jewish teachers who would come to town, they, they said, well, we've got a solution for your problem, your ugliness. You see, they were telling these Gentile Christians that they needed to place themselves under the Old Testament law. They argued that they needed to embrace physical circumcision. They needed to adopt the rules and regulations of the Mosaic Covenant. Really, what they were doing is they were teaching these Gentiles that you needed to become Jewish in order to truly become Christian. And they said, then that will make you truly beautiful, (laughs) truly accepted, especially in the eyes of God. But here's the thing. (laughs) The Apostle Paul knew better. The Apostle Paul knew better. He knew that to embrace such an approach, to try to become Jewish in order to truly become Christian, that would be to go backwards in redemptive history. It would be like trying to work for what you've already been given. It would be like a PhD student being told they need to go back to kindergarten. It wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't be a gospel approach and say it would be enslaving. It would be bondage. And you see, Paul understood that because Paul understood what it is to be a Christian. He understood what it is to live as a Christian. And Paul understood these things because he knew Christ. He knew who Christ is and how Christ changes everything and that's what paul wants these galatians to understand he wants them to see how christ and his gospel changes everything he wants them to grasp who christ is and then who they are in him who they are in him so here beginning in chapter 4 of this book paul hits them with what i'll call an identity canon And identity. And what I mean by that is that Paul loads up his heavy artillery, his apostolic attack with a heavy dose of identity. He's launching identity at them. And he begins, he begins his barrage of identity with who they were. Who they were, who we were. He says, look at verse three. He says that we used to be like, Children, enslaved to the ABCs, the elementary principles of the world. And that phrase, elementary principles of the world, we looked at this last week. That's Paul's way of describing life under the Old Testament law. It was like grammar school. Taught us the basics. Taught us the basics of who God is, and who we are, and why we need a savior. The law taught us, but it couldn't save us didn't save us. It had us living like, like children under, the, under a tutor, under the bondage of guardians and managers. And, and that's a phrase that Paul uses a, in his opening analogy of this chapter. In verses 1 and 2, Paul says, look at the text, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Paul says, I mean that in error, and here he's using this analogy from the culture. He says, I mean that in error, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Paul says, that's how we once were. We had this great inheritance of promise from the heavenly father, but we were still waiting for the appointed time. We were in the bondage of our immaturity. That was life under the law. Life under the law. But then starting in verse 4, Paul focuses on another identity. The identity of the one who changes everything. He focuses in on the the identity of the one who who liberated us from the bondage of our immaturity. And it wasn't the Jewish teachers, and it wasn't the Galatians, and it wasn't you and me. Look at what Paul says. Look at the text, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth who His his Son. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, there, there's change. There's a change in our identity. We go from immature children under this bondage to this adoption as sons, to mature sons ready to enter into the inheritance of their father. But what we need to understand this morning is that this new identity, adopted as sons, ready to receive this inheritance from our Father, this new identity is deeply rooted in the identity of another. It comes to us through the identity of another. And so in order to truly understand who we now are, we need to behold the glory of the one who made us that way. In order to truly understand who you now are as a Christian, you need to behold the glory of Christ. That's what Paul's getting at here. You need to behold the glory of Christ. And that's what Paul does here, starting in verse 4. He reminds his readers of the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. And look at this. The first thing that Paul explains here is that Jesus isn't just some random historical figure. He's He's not just some random guy in history. Instead, Jesus is the zenith of the plan of God. He's the the apex, the the climax, the crowning moment. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come. In other words, history had been waiting. God's plan was unfolding. And then when everything reached just the right moment, when the fruit was perfectly ripe, then God sent forth his son. Here's a question for us this morning what made that moment in history so perfect? What made it different from any other moment in history? Why was it the fullness of time? Well, first, to answer that question, in keeping with Paul's opening analogy, it was the date, the time set by the Father. He says, you're under the guardians and managers until the date set by the Father, right? So it was that date and time set by the Father. According to the Father, God the Father, grammar school had now run its course. The time of our immaturity was done. And here's the thing, the world was ready for it to be done. The world was ready for it to be done. Commentator Philip Ryken puts it this way. He says the Gentiles were tired of serving the old pagan gods. The Jews were weary of being held prisoner by the law they had tried and failed to keep For a thousand years, grammar school was done. The Father's appointed time had come, and the world was ready for it to be done. God had the world prepared. God had the world prepared now to hear a message of hope. And one of the things that I think is really fascinating about the time and the culture into which Jesus came is not that simply people were worn out from the old approach, (laughs) But also that God had the world prepared, ready for the spread of this message of hope, the spread of the gospel. New Testament scholar William Hendrickson, he points some of this out. He he describes what he calls the ripeness of opportunity for scattering far and wide the seeds of the gospel. And then he, he points to some reasons why everything was just right. First, he speaks of the spread of the Greek language throughout the civilized world. So it gave the world a common tongue. You're going to go and communicate the gospel. People are going to understand you because at that point in history, there was a common tongue, the Greek language. He then points out the presence of Jewish synagogues. He says, in many places, enabling Christian missionaries to reach both Jews and Gentile proselytes." Simultaneously, they could walk into a synagogue, and here was a group of people who were studying the Old Testament scriptures. You had Jews, you had Gentile proselytes all sitting together, and you could engage with them. And, and at that point in history, synagogues were everywhere. Every major, almost every major Roman city had at least one synagogue, most of them had multiple. And then finally, Hendrickson speaks of some of the advantages provided just by the Roman Empire itself. He explains that Christian evangelists like Paul were, were helped by the network of Roman roads. You get to where you needed to go, and they built some good roads. They're still in existence today. You get where you needed to go. He said they were helped by the network of Roman roads, and to some extent, the enforcement of Roman peace. There wasn't war everywhere. And so here's the thing: at that point in history, things were ready. The world was ready for change. And Jesus was, <laughs> Jesus is the change. For the world, Jesus is the fulcrum in the plan of God. You know what? You know what a fulcrum is. What a fulcrum is? Picture, picture a teeter-totter. Do playgrounds even have teeter-totters? <laughs> well, hopefully, you know what a teeter-totter is. So picture, picture a teeter-totter, and you've got you know you've got the bar out holding the two seats, one on each end, and they rest upon a fulcrum. And that fulcrum is the pivot point on which those two seats move, you know, up and down. There's movement because of the fulcrum. It's the pivot point. And what I want you to understand is Jesus is the fulcrum. He is the pivot point for history. He is the one upon whom everything shifts. His coming changes everything. With his coming, that, that long season In grammar school was done. Life under the law. Yes, the law was necessary. But here's the thing: the law was all pointing somewhere. It was all pointing to Jesus Christ. We said this before, but the but the law was like is like a shadow. It's like like that shadow that you cast upon your child's bedroom wall when you start to enter the doorway in order to tuck them into bed you know what i'm talking about you're walking down the hall the shadows coming through the doorway they see it up on the wall and they see that shadow and what does it point to it points to you're coming daddy's coming but here's the thing that shadow it can't tuck them into bed That shadow can't read them a bedtime story. That shadow can't show them love or hug them or give them kisses. Because it's not the substance. It's just the preparation. It's just the announcement. And that's the way life was under the law. It was just getting things ready. But now the fulfillment, the substance, and the fulcrum has come. And that's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. He's not just some random historical figure. He is the fulfillment of the plan of God. The fulcrum upon which all history shifts. That's the glory of who Jesus is. And here's the thing. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy to be such a person. The fulfillment and the fulcrum of all history. Because Jesus isn't just some human being. Jesus isn't just some human being. Jesus Jesus isn't just some random historical figure and he isn't just some human being. That's the second thing here that Paul makes clear. And just look at how he does it here. Paul says, verse 4, look at it. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God sent his son. He sent him. He didn't make him. When the fullness of time had come, God didn't make, that is, create his son. Nor did he appoint his son. As though he He picked a human being out from among all of the other human beings. and said, okay, you, you're now my son. No, God sent his son. And that word sent implies someone or something that has already existed. And is now going from one location to another. Already exists, you sent it from here To hear. It already exists. It's not going from one location to another. The thing is being sent. And so Jesus, when the fullness of time had come, was sent forth. But from where? Sent from where? Was he just some angel chilling up in heaven? Was he, as our our Mormon friends argue, some preexistent, created being who had worked really hard and now had achieved enough status in order to be sent to earth and show us this is how you do it if you want your own planet. From where was Jesus sent forth? I well, wouldn't we have to guess. The New Testament gives the answer to that question. And it's staggering. It's staggering. and take your Bibles and turn for a moment over to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. And here, in John chapter 1, verse 1, uh, we find the, the banner, uh, the, the glorious declaration that hangs over the threshold of John's gospel. John, as he opens his gospel, he, he throws down the gauntlet in the very first verse because he wants to make sure that there is no doubt about the true identity of the subject of his gospel. Look at what he writes. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, here's the thing. Down in verse 14, John tells us who he's describing by this title of the Word. Look at John 1, 14. He explains, And the Word, this what I'm talking about, John says, became flesh. And he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, John is speaking about who? Okay, like, yeah, yeah. It's okay to answer back. He's speaking about Jesus. But here in verse 1, he tells us about where Jesus, the word, came from. And he first tells us that he came from eternity. He came from eternity. In the beginning, when everything was being made that was being made, the word was. He already existed. You see, he's not part of the created universe. He didn't have a beginning. In the beginning, he already was. But what was he doing in eternity? Well, John says he was dwelling with God, and the word was with God. He was dwelling in relationships. With God. But what kind of relationship? What kind of relationship? Well, John's gospel actually goes on to unpack that for us a bit. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but over in John chapter 17, verse 5, as Jesus himself is praying over his disciples, he says this. Listen, this is John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, listen, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed you see when the son was with the father in eternity they were in a relationship of glory what does that mean? relationship of glory that means a relationship where all of the excellencies all of the beauty all of the wonder of the character and nature of God was on display the glory of God a relationship of glory it was glorious glorious That was a relationship of glorious love. That's how Jesus describes it later here in the same prayer in John chapter 17. This is John 17, 24. Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because, listen, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is the way it was in eternity for the word. He was in a relationship of glorious love with God. But that's not the most staggering thing that John says here in this opening verse. Again, look at it. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, here's the thing although there are some like the Jehovah's Witnesses and their New World Translation who play fast and loose with this text, there is no better way, there is no better way for John to describe truly who Jesus is. He is not saying Jesus is a God. That's not a correct translation of the Greek text. But neither is he saying that Jesus is the God, as though there is only one person in the Godhead, and Jesus is it. No, instead, he is saying, Jesus is God. Just like the Bible teaches us that the Father is God, and just like the Bible teaches us that the Spirit is God, Jesus is God. He is divine, possessing all the attributes of deity. He is, as the ancient creeds put it, God of very God. He is part of the Godhead. Father, Son, Spirit. Three distinct persons who yet possess one divine nature. Three, yet one, holy, triune God. And that's why John can say that Jesus, the Word, the Son has always existed. And that's why he can say that he has always existed in relationship with God. He is God. God the Son in eternal relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. This is the New Testament answer to where Jesus was before he was sent. You see, Jesus wasn't just some human being being born into the world. Now he is the eternal, divine God the Son, the one who has always existed In a relationship of glorious, perfect love within the Trinity itself. But when the fullness of time had come, God the Son was sent. He is Emmanuel, right? God with us. He is God the Son, sent by God the Father, in order to be the fulfillment and the fulcrum of history. Again, this is the glory of who Jesus is. This is the glory of who Jesus is. However, in order to accomplish God's plan for history, this one, Jesus the Word, God the Son, also had to become like one of us. He had to become like one of us. And that's, that's the third thing that Paul shows us here in Galatians 4. Go ahead and turn back now to Galatians chapter 4. And here again, Paul is teaching that Jesus is not just some random person from history. He's not just some human being. But he also is showing us here that Jesus was, was made like one of us. I we to remember that as Jesus became like one of us. And Paul shows us that here through through two phrases that he uses. Look at the text. Born of woman and born under the law. Jesus was made like us. Jesus became like one of us. Born of woman, born under the law. Let me explain what these two phrases are pointing to. Let's look at this first phrase, born of woman. And really I think Paul here is making two points. First, he is pointing to the incarnation of the Son of God. Jesus became truly Human. Again, we saw that back there in John 1.14 where John says, And the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus didn't just appear human. He became flesh. He was born of woman. He became human just like the rest of us. And he was just like the rest of us. Sometimes sometimes when we think about the Incarnation, we think that it made Jesus like some kind of Superman. You know, he looks like Clark Kent, but underneath he's a son of Krypton. He looks like Jesus of Nathers, but underneath he's really a son of God. And, and what I mean by that analogy is that as we try to hold on to the deity of Christ, which the Son of God did retain, he never stopped being God, but as we try to hold on to the deity of Christ, we then downplay the reality of Jesus' humanity. And what we do is we we commit the heresy of Eutychianism. I'm not expecting you to write that one down in your notes. Eutychianism. And you see, in the 5th century, there was a teacher named Eutychus. A Christian teacher. Well, claimed to be a Christian. And he taught his followers that the divine nature of God the Son in the incarnation then mixed with the human nature of Jesus. And it created this... This third new, like, hybrid nature, like a Superman. Eutychianism. Here's the thing. It's a heresy. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus possesses two two distinct natures. So he is both fully God and truly human. And you ask, how does that work, Ryan? I don't know. This is what the Bible teaches. Are you okay with that? That sometimes there are things that the Bible teaches that our little minds can't completely grasp, but we hold on to them because that's what the Bible says. So the Bible teaches this. Fully God, also truly human. He was like us in every way. Every way. Except one. Except one. The author of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Not Superman. Weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without what? And without sin. You see, Jesus knew and I don't just mean have head knowledge, I mean experientially. He knew our human weaknesses. He experienced our human weaknesses. He was truly human. He got tired. He got weary. He knew hunger. He knew thirst. Ready for this one? He knew our emotional roller coasters. Experientially. He knew great joy Cut wrenching sorrow and table turn in anger. He knew it. He experienced it. He knew anxiety so strong that he sweat drops of blood. Yet, in all of that, he didn't sin. He never gave a fleshly response. He never broke the law's commands. He never stepped outside of his father's will. And, and there are some who say, well, that was only because he was using his divine power. His humanity was just a ruse, just a big hoax. And others, there are others who will say that the sinlessness of Jesus shows us that he wasn't truly human. He truly doesn't understand what it is to live like one of us because as the saying goes, to air is human. Here's the thing. Neither of those critiques are correct. Neither of those are critiques are correct. As I just explained, there is no mixing of the two natures in the person of Jesus. One nature isn't jumping in to bail out the other nature. But also this idea that to err to sin is human, that is deeply flawed. That is deeply flawed. Why do I say that? I say it because as human beings, we're not, we weren't created to be sinners. Amen. As human beings, we were not created as sinners. Sin, instead, is an invader to the system. It's a parasite on our human experience, a corrupter of our humanity. Actually, that Jesus lived a sinless life is a testament to his true humanity. He lived a truly human life the way it was created to be lived. In obedience to our creator God. Let me put it to you this way. Jesus was actually more human than you or me. Jesus was more human than you or me. We fell from our original design. We fell from true humanity. And the reality of that fall is also what I think is driving Paul in this phrase, born of woman. Born of woman. Take your Bibles and turn for a moment. We're going to come back to Galatians. Galatians. But turn all the way back to the beginning. Turn back to the beginning. Turn over to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. (coughs) And here, and you know this, but here in Genesis chapter 3, we read of the fall of man. Uh, We see Satan, the tempter, enter the garden paradise. He deceives the woman. She draws in her husband, and together they rebel against their creator. They they rebel against their true humanity. And with that rebellion, everything changes. Paradise ceases to be paradise. Instead, it becomes a place of shame and guilt and division. We see this here in Genesis chapter 3. The man turns against the woman. The woman turns against the creation. And God judges them all for rebellion. Sin and death through it enter into the system. But here's the thing. In the midst of this scene of rebellion and shame and judgment, we read a promise of hope. Look at what God says in verse 15 to the serpent, and that old devil to the adversary of humanity. He gives this promise. Look at it, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what I want you to understand is that that is so much more than a promise that ladies are going to be afraid of snakes. (laughs) Actually, that's God's promise of coming deliverance. It's his promise, his promise that the works of the serpent will be undone, that things won't always be as they are, and that in the midst of brokenness and shame... One is coming who is going to take it all away. Theologians actually call this promise the proto-evangelium, the the first glimmers of the gospel, the evangel. And here's the thing. What Paul is telling us in Galatians 4.4 is that the promised offspring has come. The seed of the woman has come. Jesus, the Son of God, sent in the fullness of time, is the promised one born of woman. Born of woman. You see, that phrase, born of woman, I don't think that's just a reference to the humanity of Christ. It's a reference to how the humanity of Christ is a fulfillment of a long-expected promise. One day, the promise was, one day one will come, born of woman. And Paul says, he has come. He has come, and he is Jesus, God the Son, sent in the fullness of time. And again, this is the glory of who Jesus is. This is the glory of who Jesus is. But Paul doesn't say, just say he was born of woman. He wasn't just. Jesus wasn't just born of woman. He didn't simply come to take upon himself our humanity and identify as one of us, a long promised one of us. No, Jesus came to actually do something. He came born under the law. Born under the law. And this is the second way in Galatians 4, that Paul says that Jesus became like one of us. However, before we jump back to Galatians 4, I want to pause for another moment here in Genesis. And I want to pause here for a moment because I want us to take a look at something here in Genesis that I believe is going to help us understand what Paul is getting at back there in Galatians 4 when he speaks of Jesus being born under the law. You see, here's what we need to understand. The first Adam, he too was born Under law. He was born under law. The human race was created under law. There in the garden, in paradise, there was law. But it wasn't the 613 commandments of the Mosaic covenant. Instead, it was simply one commandment. One rule. Which created what theologians call the covenant of works. The covenant of works. And we find this one rule, this solitary commandment here in Genesis chapter 2. Go and turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Look at Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat it eat of it you shall surely die. And this was a covenant of works. God covenanted with the man. He promised the man that Eden would be a paradise, that all the trees of the garden would be his and that he would know life. The life that he was created to enjoy with God, with creation, with the rest of mankind. It was a covenant A promise. But here's the thing. It had to be maintained how? By works. By the man's obedience. For God said. In the day that you eat of it. The forbidden tree. The day you stop honoring me. As your creator. By your obedience. The day you break this covenant. You shall surely die. In other words. The blessings of the covenant will be taken from you because you are broken it, and we all know what happened, right? We all know what happened. We just talked about it from Genesis chapter three. The covenant was broken. Adam broke it, and here's the thing: he broke it for himself and for all who he represented. You see, Adam was in the covenant for all of us. He was the head of our race. He was the representative of his people. He was in that covenant for all of us. And so, just like if our president broke a peace treaty and he brought war upon our country, and we all suffered for it. Adam, our representative, broke that covenant and he brought the consequences of breaking that covenant upon all humanity. So because of that first Adam, we've been all, we've all been living under the reality of this broken covenant. Loss of life. But then, in the fullness of time, this one, born of woman, was also born under the law. And he too entered into a covenant. But it wasn't the covenant of works laid out back there in Genesis chapter 2. That covenant was broken. We're all dealing with the consequences. No, the last Adam, as scripture calls him, Christ, was born under another covenant. The Mosaic. The covenant. Now here, I know I've been preaching for a while. Follow me on this, please. I know this is not going to be easy, but I want you to follow me on this because it's important. The Mosaic Covenant. The covenant made at Sinai is rather unique. And I say that because in one sense it is a covenant of grace. It's God's grace to give us the law because it teaches us about himself. We've talked about this. It teaches us about himself. Teaches us about our own hearts. It exposes our own hearts, and it points us to a need for a savior. I mean, when we when we fell, God could have just left us all blind in our sins and trespasses, right? He had that right, but he didn't. And and, and all of the elements of remedial school, life under the law, all of the things that we talked about last week, all of those realities, revelation of God, revelation of self, pointing to the savior, all those things that we learn under the law—that's all God's grace to us. So in one sense, the law is an act of grace to God's people. However, there's also very much about the covenant made at Sinai that comes across as a covenant of works. Covenant of works. Turn with me now over to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Again, stick with me through this. I don't want to lose you here. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And here as you're turning there, what's going on in Deuteronomy is Moses is reestablishing the covenant made at Sinai with a new generation of Israelites. He's getting them ready to, to enter into the promised land. So he's, he's reminding them of the covenant and helping them understand the covenant made at Sinai. And look at how he explains the covenant to them. There, Deuteronomy chapter 28, look at verse one. He says to them, And if you fully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, all those things laid out in the law, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings, life, and through Deuteronomy chapter 28, there's a whole long list of them, but we can put them all under the banner of life. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. You'll be swimming in them. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then look down at verse 15. But if you will not obey, verse 15, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, Then all these curses, and Moses lists a bunch of them, but we could put them all under the banner of death. All these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And I think that what we are seeing here with the covenant at Sinai is a repetition of the covenant of works. Again, God promises blessings for keeping the covenant and judgment for breaking it. Now, what I want you to understand this morning is this is the covenant Into which Christ, the last Adam, enters. And he is born under the law. But not for it to expose his sin like it does ours. And not to point him to his need for his savior like the law does for us. Instead he enters into this covenant of works as a representative of us. Last Adam. A representative of his people. He is true Israel under covenant with God. But here's the thing. Here's the glorious truth where Adam failed and where Israel failed and where we all failed. He doesn't. He succeeds. And this is how he changes everything. This is how he fulfills that long promised triumph of the offspring of the woman. This is how God comes to save us. You see, through his obedience under that covenant, he earns us the blessings, all of the blessings of that covenant. He has given us the gift of life, true, sinless life, through his perfect, flawless obedience to the covenant. And here's the thing, he, he earns that life, not just for himself, but for all those who are in him, just like we were in once in Adam. But also as our representative under the covenant. He takes all of the punishments. All of the curses of the law. For us. As Jesus died upon that cross. He bore the wrath. The judgment of God. All grace. All grace. Was removed from him. And he suffered like no one ever suffered. He tasted both physical and spiritual death, the curses of the covenant. And he tasted it, he drank it in for all those who are in him. He bears our sins and suffers for our iniquities. And through all of that, this one, born of woman, born under the law, this one who became just like us, born into our humanity, born under a covenant of works. Through all of that, he sets us free. He sets us free from having to, to try to keep that covenant so that we could enjoy the life that we were made for. We don't have to keep the covenant because someone has already done it for us. Praise Jesus. Amen? He sets us free. To enjoy true humanity. What we were created for. That is the glory of who Jesus is. That's the glory of who Jesus is. So now, go ahead and turn back to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And having unpacked all of that. (laughs) Look now at the text. Looking again at our text. Galatians 4, starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, through this finished work of Christ applied to you, because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Eden, restored. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, and then an heir through God. Jesus sets us free. Jesus sets us free. He sets us free. From the bondages of life under the law. A life of, of sin and shame and judgment and fear. And, and he brings us into our new identity. Into true humanity. A life lived enjoying the fellowship and the delight with our God as his precious sons and daughters. But here's the thing. We will never understand that and we will never really live that out if we first don't understand who he is. So, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's the one who changes everything. He's the one who changes everything. He's not just some random figure of history. He's not just some human being. He is God himself who became one of us in order to save us from sin and judgment and death and bring us into the freedom of true, real life with our creator, God, the life we were created to enjoy. So yes, Jesus is my personal savior. Jesus is my personal savior. But the more I learn about who he is and what he has done, the more I learn about what that truly means. What that truly means. The more I discover what he's saved me from and what he's made me through this great salvation. You see, in order to truly understand who you are as a Christian, you need to behold the glory of Christ. You need to behold the glory of Christ. And the more you do, the more you see who you are and the more you then can live out of who you are. We are Christians. Christians. And as Christians, let us never forget that it is his identity that defines ours. It's his identity that defines ours. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you, you know how I'm feeling today. I just, I love preach about you you are so glorious so worthy of all of our adoration all of our affection all of our sacrifices all of our life there is none like you and we praise you and I, I praise you that, that all the things we touched on this morning each one could have been a whole sermon a whole series of sermons in and of itself And still we wouldn't exhaust the depth of the glory of who you are. I praise you one day we will be in glory and we will just be in awe of who you are and what you've done. I thank you that in your grace, in your sovereign mercy, you have given us your word. You have given us the spirit. And so I pray that the things we've talked about this morning from the word of God, that you would take these truths by the Spirit you would apply these to our hearts. Help us to be people who just behold the glory of who you are and then delight that we are in you. Help us to see how your identity defines ours and how your identity changes everything about these lives of ours. Help us to walk in the joy, the hope of not being under the law anymore. But being in the freedom of the sons and daughters of God. You are so good to us. You are our mighty deliverer. And we praise you. These things we pray in your name. Amen.